Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. This is the second half of episode number 5.7, where we will be talking about the books of Jonah through Malachi. So our first book is the book of Jonah, and the big idea of the book of Jonah is the grace of God. And if there was a theme verse from the book of Jonah, it would come from Jonah chapter 2 verse 9, which says, salvation is from the Lord. Now you can't talk about the book of Jonah without talking about Jesus, because ultimately Jonah's book points forward to the Messiah. As Jesus himself says in Luke 11:30, for just as Jonah became assigned to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The book of Jonah is well known because it tells a great story. It tells the story of Jonah, a stubborn prophet who God commands to preach his word to the Ninevites. Jonah refuses and heads in the opposite direction to Tarshish, which is on the other side of the world relative to Nineveh. As a result of his disobedience, the ship upon which Jonah is is shipwrecked, and Jonah is swallowed by a great fish. Jonah is in the belly of a great fish for three days. He prays and cries out to God, and the fish spits him out. Jonah then is put back on dry land, and he finally ends up going back to Nineveh. He preaches God's word to the Ninevites, and amazingly, the entire city of Nineveh repents. Jonah ends his own book frustrated because he was upset that God showed the Ninevites mercy or unmerited favor. Now the book of Jonah once again tells a marvelous story, and there are many incidentals in Jonah's book. There's the ship, there's the fish, there's the plant, and there's the city of Nineveh. But the essential, the core element in the book of Jonah is God and man, is God and Jonah, is God and human beings. And what the book of Jonah tells us is that salvation is of the Lord, meaning that God is sovereignly and operatively in control of salvation. And ultimately, it's not human works that are responsible for salvation. It's God who is. As a result, salvation is of the Lord. The book of Jonah points forward to many themes found in the New Testament, such as the resurrection, such as the fact that salvation is not by works and that salvation is God-achieved. It points forward to the fact that God's purposes cannot be frustrated, that God will not reject faithless servants, and that God is good and that He is gracious. It tells us that God's plan of salvation was always designed to be global, not local, and it tells us that God God always uses a mediator to mediate his plan of salvation. Now, I mentioned that the book of Jonah tells us that God's plan of salvation was always designed to be global, not local. And we have to understand the historical context of Jonah to fully appreciate its message. Jonah was a Hebrew, and he was sent to preach God's word to the Assyrians. Now, why that is important is thus. When Jonah fulfilled his prophetic office, Isaiah had already prophesied that the Assyrians would be the empire that would exile the northern kingdom of Israel out of the promised land. The capital city of Assyria was Nineveh. So, when God told Jonah to go preach his word to the Ninevites, he was essentially sending his prophet to the capital city of the nation that was already prophesied that would exile the Israelites 
from the promised land. So we can understand historically why Jonah would have been hesitant or been reluctant to go preach the word to Nineveh. That in no way, shape, or form dismisses Jonah's disobedience, but it does put God's plan of salvation into context. Because time and time again in the Old Testament, even before Jesus, was never meant for one particular biological group of people. It was meant to be a global phenomenon that transcended race, color, tribe, language, and political boundaries. So the big idea of the book of Jonah is the grace of God. So even though Jonah was stubborn, and even though Jonah was disobedient, God treated him with grace, with unmerited, undeserved favor. And even though the Ninevites, even though they did not deserve God's grace, God treated them with mercy and his loving kindness. Because the big idea of the book of Jonah is the grace of God and that salvation is of the Lord. The next book in the book of 12 is the book of Micah. Now, Micah was a prophet who was born in the south, in the southern kingdom of Judah, but then had his prophetic ministry in the north, in the northern kingdom of Israel. And the big idea of the book of Micah is actually a question, and that is, who is a God like you? Micah 7.18 says the following, Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in unchanging love. Now the book of Micah has a sense of balance, of judgment and mercy. So Micah chapters 1 to 3 details a God of judgment, and these chapters deal with Micah prophesying against Israel while it is being besieged. But then the latter half of Micah, in chapters 4 to 7, that details God's plan of redemption in spite of the acute historical act of judgment. Micah also points forward to Jesus in that in Micah 5 verses 1 to 5, the text tells us that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and then the text goes on to describe who the Messiah will be. Micah writes, And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Now, as I mentioned, the big idea of the book of Micah is a question, who is a God like you? And when believers of God reflect upon that question and begin to earnestly contemplate who God is, they begin to see themselves in the context of who God has called them to be. So in asking that question and in understanding who God is, we then get a sense of who we are. So in Micah 6.8, he says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Essentially, what Micah is saying here in this famous line from Micah 6.8 is that when we know who God is, we therefore know who we are, and when we know who we are, we live our lives and we conduct ourselves as if we are in the presence of God, because we realize that God is all-consuming, He is everywhere all the time, and nothing escapes His watchful eye. So Micah succinctly summarizes for us what we are now to do with our lives now that we know who God is. And once again, just like we learned in the book of Amos, 
Micah illustrates for us that there is an intimate connection between having a genuine relationship with God and doing what is right or walking in righteousness, and from that righteousness flows justice. So as R.C. Sproul says, quote, Justice is not determined by judicial precedent or political expediency. It is determined by righteousness, end quote. So all of God's followers are required to do justice, not just in a judicial sense, but in the sense of doing what is right and walking in righteousness. Micah also says in Micah 6, 8, that we are to love kindness. Now the word here for kindness comes from the Hebrew word hesed, which is often used to refer to the steadfast love or loving kindness of God. So when Micah writes to love kindness, what he's essentially saying is to love loyally, which means to regard one another and treat one another loyally in spite of the wrongs, in spite of the disappointments, and in spite of the mishaps that life will often deal us. The final thing that I'll say is that when we take a step back and put the book of Micah in historical context, he as a prophet is speaking to those Israelites in the north who were living as if they were not in the presence of God. Because when you do live that way, one will do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with Jehovah. The next book is the book of Nahum. And the big idea of the book of Nahum is very specific. It is the judgment of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. So to understand Nahum, we have to put it in the context of the rest of the prophetic books. So remember in the book of Jonah, Jonah goes to Nineveh, which was the capital city of Assyria. Jonah preaches to the Ninevites, and what do they do? Their hearts are turned, they repent, and God has mercy upon them. The book of Nahum now was written, roughly speaking, about 125 years after Jonah the prophet. So what does Nahum tell us? That roughly a century and change after Jonah went to Nineveh, what do the Ninevites do? They turned away from God once again. In other words, they turned back around after turning around. So the Ninevites fell back into their old pagan ways, and now as a result of turning away from God, God judges Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. In Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, the text says, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now, if you remember, when we went over the book of Judges, the book of Judges gave us a cycle of history in that people would walk with humility before God, things would go well, they would soon fall into apostasy and idolatry, they would be delivered unto bondage when they would repent and call upon the name of the Lord again. In a sense, Nahum gives us a cycle of nations in that nations can start off small and then they go through periods of growth and prosperity and they reach a certain peak, they reach a certain apex when they've accumulated their maximum amount of power and their maximum amount of strength. And it is then that nations become prideful, boastful, and arrogant and leave God behind. This pride therefore leads to complacency, apathy, and idolatry 
And once again, as Nahab says in the beginning of his book, the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. The next book in the book of 12 is Habakkuk. And the big idea of the book of Habakkuk is a verse, is Habakkuk 2, 4, which says, but the righteous will live by faith. I've chosen a verse as the big idea of this prophet's book because this verse, Habakkuk 2, 4, is quoted three times in the New Testament. Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10.38. So this is critically important, and God is drawing our attention back to this critically important verse in the Old Testament. The name Habakkuk means embracer. So this prophet in his book, he takes us aside, he embraces us, he hugs us, and he actually says, it's going to be okay. And Habakkuk's book is actually meant to be sung as a song because the final line of his book reads, for the choir director on my stringed instruments. So Habakkuk begins his book in a distressed, pointed tone. He essentially begins his book by looking up to God and saying, hey God, why don't you do something? It's almost as if he has a tone that says, God, can't you see what's happening all around me? Why don't you move and act? Habakkuk 1 verses 2 to 4 says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. After the first chapter, after the prophet lays his case before God, chapter 2 verses 1 to 4 says the following. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. It is then that the Lord responds to his prophet. The text then says, The Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith." So Habakkuk began the book saying, God, hey, please respond, please do something. And God responds by saying, though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. And God basically tells his prophet, you're asking me to do something right here, right now. But what God reveals to him is that God has already accomplished. God has already done. God has already set the ending of this particular situation before it even started. The problem with Habakkuk was that he was a finite human being living in the present and he just lacked the foresight. He just lacked the eternal mindset, which had God's end to the current situation already completed in eternity past. The other thing Habakkuk teaches us is this. When we implore God to answer our prayers, we also have to ask ourselves if we're ready for God to answer us. After Habakkuk gets an answer from God, it rattled him to the core and his soul was disrupted because of the 
power and the potency of God's response. So are you actually ready for God to answer your prayers? Habakkuk 3 verses 16 to 19 says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He has made my feet like hinds feet, and makes me walk on my high places. The next book in the book of 12 is Zephaniah. And the big idea of the book of Zephaniah is that love hurts. Zephaniah was a prophet in the royal line. His great-grandfather was actually King Hezekiah of Judah. And Zephaniah fulfilled his prophetic office just before the captivity. So, in spite of his prophetic words of rebuke, God allowed his people to be exiled for their own good. So the message that Zephaniah told the people was basically, love hurts, and although you are being exiled, this is being done out of the love that God has for you. As a medical doctor, I can say there are some patients who come in to see me and they leave in more pain than when they came in. Sometimes they have a collection of pus that needs to be ruptured open. Sometimes they have to be sutured up. Sometimes they have to have a small surgical procedure in the office to make them well. But although they leave the office feeling hurt, although they leave the office feeling pain, I did that medical procedure to heal them, to cure them, because my intent and my goal is for them to be well. So in the historical context that Zephaniah operated, he was speaking to a people who are filled with idolatry, and he was speaking to a people who purposely disobeyed God's commandments. And Zephaniah's message was basically that love hurts, and sometimes God, as our great spiritual physician, he will operate on us without a sedative, and we will leave after an interaction with him, hurting more than when we came in, but he's doing so out of love to cut out spiritual cancer so that we will be well. Also in Zephaniah's book is a seven times mention of the day of the Lord and the jealousy of God for those who are his own and for those for whom he will act to save them. Zephaniah 3.8 says, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. So that verse, Zephaniah 3.8, detailed the wrath and the vengeance of God, which is now balanced by the love of God. So Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. The next book is the book of Haggai, and the big idea here is very simple. It is the rebuilding of the temple. So Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, they're the final three books in the Old Testament, and those three books are post-captivity, 
meaning these prophets fulfilled their prophetic offices after the exiles returned from Babylon. So, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi acted as God's reliable mouthpieces after the people had been exiled and returned back to Jerusalem and the Promised Land. So the remnant that did return from exile, their morale wasn't high. As a result, Haggai was the one who encouraged them and exhorted them to rebuild the temple. Historically speaking, the ministry of Haggai coincides with the ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah, and Haggai is actually mentioned in Ezra as a prophet who encouraged the people to rebuild the temple. Haggai 1 verses 8 and 14 says, Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. The eleventh book in the book of twelve is Zechariah. And the big idea of the book of Zechariah is that God remembers. In fact, this is what Zechariah's name means, God remembers. Zechariah was an apocalyptic visionary, and he had more messianic prophecies than any other minor prophet. Zechariah essentially looked forward to a future era, when the Messiah would be in the promised land and give the remnant hope for the future. So we have to note the connection between Zechariah in the Old Testament and Zacharias, the high priest who served in his office at the beginning of Luke before the birth narrative of Jesus. Because Zechariah and Zechariah come from the same root in Hebrew, and both names mean God remembers. In fact, Zacharias's wife in the New Testament, his wife's name was Elizabeth, and her name means his oath. So that coupled together, Zacharias and Elizabeth, their names both mean God remembers his oath. So Zechariah in the Old Testament could look forward to a time in the future when the Messiah would be in the promised land, when Zacharias in the New Testament, he could be alive and then look back to the Old Testament and see how the Messiah, Jesus, fulfilled many, many Old Testament prophecies. So no matter which way you look, whether you're, whether you're a visionary looking to the future or a priest looking back to the past, the point is that God remembers. And Zechariah 8 verses 1 to 3 and 7 to 8 says, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with a great wrath, I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. 
So again, the big idea of the book of Zechariah is that God remembers and the prophet could look forward into the future with confidence and hope, knowing that because God remembers, he will make good on his promises. The final book of the Minor Prophets and the last book in the entire Old Testament is the book of Malachi. And the big idea of the book of Malachi are the messengers of the Lord. So if we take a step back, the big idea of the entire Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi is basically Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. So what Malachi now does as the final book of the Old Testament, it essentially told the Jews back then that the drama of redemption, that God's work of salvation will be continued. This isn't the final chapter, and there are going to be messengers to come in the future. The name Malachi actually means my messenger, and Malachi points us to those who are to come. Now, the two main messengers that Malachi points forward to are number one, John the Baptist, and number two, Jesus. So the first messenger will be John the Baptist, and he will be a messenger that points us to the ultimate messenger, Jesus Christ. Now, in Malachi 3, verse 1, the text says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So when the text says, my messenger, it refers to John the Baptist, and pay attention to the tense of this prophecy. The person who is speaking is speaking in the first person. So again, Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. The implication is that here in Malachi, the pre-incarnate Christ is speaking, and he's basically saying, John the Baptist is going to come before me, and he's going to clear the way before me, and point other people towards me, the Messiah. And then in Malachi 4, 5, the text says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And as we all know, Jesus himself refers to John the Baptist as Elijah who was to come, and John the Baptist paved the way for the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.